several years ago, I tried to establish, and we pretty much have kept the tradition of any time a family has their first child in this church, we try to deliver them a copy of the book, um, the, the Runaway Bunny, uh, because The Runaway Bunny is the greatest book ever written, and is definitely uh, a, a wonderful one to read your children. Now, I have not gotten to everybody. Y'all have babies faster than I can buy books, but we've done our best. So if you haven't gotten one, feel free to make a note. Uh, I don't care how old your kids are. I'll bring you one by in the next couple of weeks. But The Runaway Bunny is a great story. It's a story that uh, a lot of us lived uh, out through home, in our homes of a little bunny who tells his mother, I want to run away. And she simply says, well, you can run away, but I'll go find you. And he, he says, well, if you find me, I'm going to become a bird and fly far, far away. And she says, if you become a bird and fly far, far away, I'll become a tree that you fly home to. And he says, well, then I'm going to become a boat and sail far, far away. And she says, if you become a boat, I'm, I'm going to become the wind and I'm going to blow you back to myself. And it continues on, I'm going to become a fish that swims away from you in the stream. And she says, I'll be the fisherman there to catch you. And eventually he kind of gives in and says, well, if you're going to do all that, I guess I'll just stay here and be your little bunny. And that's, of course, what she wants in the first place. And the reason I love that story is it it does describe that never-ending Never failing, always pursuing, always hoping, always believing uh, kind of love that parents uh, want to have for their children and sometimes do. But more importantly, it describes this love that God has for us, this, this aggressive, not in a bad sense of the word, but in the active sense of the word, an aggressive love that's coming after us, that's seeking us that will not let us get away. And indeed, what I want you to see this morning is that the story of the whole Bible is God is seeking to dwell with his people. God wants to dwell with his people. He is trying to get back into relationship with us so that he can dwell in the midst of his people again. And what we're going to study today, Pentecost really is the fulfillment of that desire. You know, I know the, if you're just kind of thinking according to where it comes, Acts is kind of in the middle of the New Testament, but when you think of the narratives of the New Testament, it's kind of the end. Like Acts is the last narrative chapter of the New Testament, and it really is the climax and the falling action. Jesus has gone, has been sacrificed sacrificed. He has come back to life. He has gone into heaven. He has ascended into heaven. And the Holy Spirit has come. He has come and he is living with us. God is living in the midst of his people again. That's the goal. And from here on out, it's just simply the spreading of that goal until it is complete, until his uh, creation is set right, until all of his people are are in the fold and know him. He is uh, at work Uh, reuniting his people, dwelling with them, and turning this jungle into a garden. Isn't that a beautiful text there, uh, Isaiah 32, that we read uh, read for the call to worship. 
he's he's going to give us habitations. He's turning these these jungles, this wilderness, into a a fruitful field. What does that sound like? That's a garden. (laughs) He's restoring the garden. Why does he want to restore the garden? Because he built it to dwell with us. He built it to dwell with us. So if you remember last week, we talked about the two circles. Uh, Created to be together, right? We're created to be this. God's kingdom and our kingdom. One place. Dwelling together. Knowing each other's love. But sin separated us. Essentially, we didn't want to live with him. We wanted to me-do it. (laughs) Uh, You just see examples of this every day, right? I I was in Target yesterday, and this mom, bless her heart, she was trying so hard to do two things. To do two things that were equal and opposite. One, she was trying to be a good mother. Two, she was trying to get her shopping done at Target. And she couldn't do both because the girl, little girl, the little clearly two-year-old girl, was not interested in getting her shopping done in Target. She was interested in walking back and forth, opening up that automatic door. And, she was, and, and Mom was doing everything she could to not yell. And I just loved her for it. And she knew if she picked that girl up, she was going to scream. And she didn't want that. Right? The little girl wanted me do it. We don't want to live with God. We want to me do it. We want to decide for ourselves what is good and true and beautiful. And we want to ignore the fact that He is the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so we can't come together. And then, I just realized we can do this. Let's try it. Jesus comes in between us, right? How's that? Pretty good. Jesus is, bridges the gap. He really does. He becomes fully human. God, the Son, becomes fully human. And as a man, he keeps the law. And as a man, he pays for our sins and he perfects us. And as a man, he enters heaven. And he's still there. And when, I really labored this last week, and I, I, mainly because so many of us didn't learn this when we were young. He has to have his body. He is still in heaven in his body because we need a man. We need a human. By a human we sin, and by a human we are regaining the kingdom of God. But not only did he, was he able to enter heaven for us, now he has sanctified us. He has sanctified our bodies so the Spirit can come out of heaven and enter us. And so every time someone is converted, every time a new person receives the Holy Spirit, the kingdoms are getting closer and closer, and more and more of God's kingdom is entering into our kingdom. And, the, and our prayers are getting answered that God's kingdom would come. And that's what we're talking about today. That because Jesus has forever taken away our sin, the Spirit can and does come to dwell with us. That's what I want you to see. At Pentecost, God fulfills his purpose. He reunites his people. He doesn't want us to be separate. He reunites his people, and he comes to dwell with us. Please stand for the reading of God's word. It's from Acts chapter 1. I'm sorry, from Acts chapter 2, the first 12 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? And there were Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to each other, What does this mean? What does this mean? Thus far the reading of God's holy word. All men are like grass, and all of our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. God's word stands forever. You may be seated. At Pentecost, God has come to dwell with his people, to reunite his people. And began setting his creation right. Began making his creation right. Uh, Before we go much further, let's just discuss a brief history of temples and, and what they are. Temples are places where humans meet with God. They are places where humans meet with God or their gods. They're not just Christian temples. There have been and always will be temples. Well, not always, but there are temples all over for whatever gods you worship, right? And uh, this is very common in their mindset. The idea that God's in heaven and we're separated from him, that's a very modern Western concept. And, and this mentality and the mentality of the first century, gods and humans, they, they dwelt with each other all the time. They did commerce, Right? And you, uh, you went to the temple to make your sacrifices to whatever god you worshipped. So if you worshipped you know, silver, if you worshipped money, you went to the, god of, uh, the goddess, of Art- goddess Artemis and you made your sacrifice there. If you worshipped power, you'd go to one of the temples of, of Caesar and you'd make your sacrifices there and then and go to work in the day to be blessed. And God, he, his temple was meant to be a place where he... And his people could meet. And the first temple he builds is in Eden. He builds a garden where he can be in the midst of his people. And his people sin. And they don't want to be with him. And so he has to drive them out to protect them from staying that way always. But, and, and frankly, that's kind of our mentality of God comes from that one verse of God driving Adam and Eve out of the garden, and we kind of have this view of him of being, you know, this. Be gone, you sinful, nasty, perverted people. Come not near me. And that is a lie. 
That is not who he is. He begins seeking them out immediately, before Cain ever even has a chance to kill Abel. He comes to Cain and says, I know what you're thinking. Don't do it. Do not do it. Noah doesn't seek him out. God comes to Noah and says, hey, Noah, I want you to build a boat. And he says, what's a boat? And he comes to Abraham and he says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you all this land. And Abraham says, yes, sir. And, and he, he's, he's seeking after his people and he begins to, to rebuild a, a people group with Abraham and, and call them to himself, call them to himself. And before he calls Abraham, he, he builds... Uh, well, he separates all of, his, all of us. He separates all humans at Babel because we were intent on using our strength to never need God again. And he wouldn't let us do that. And so he separated us. And that's really the low point of the Old Testament. And then he goes to Abraham and he begins to rebuild. And he waits for his people to grow and he redeems them out of Egypt, and 40 days after they leave Egypt, you have Pentecost. God going, Moses going up to the mountain to receive the law, and he comes down from the mountain. He, he dwells with God. He comes down from the mountain, and he has two things. He has two things. We usually think of only having one thing, but he has two things. He has the Ten Commandments and what? The plans for the tabernacle. He has the plans for the tabernacle. God's telling them, I'm going to dwell in your midst again. I'm going to dwell with you again. Here is the place I will be. I will be here. And they build the tabernacle, and, they, and God dwells it and, and dwells it and, uh, with his Shekinah glory, fills it with his glory. And, and even Moses is, is forced out by his glory. And he has to, um, then Moses gives. And then God gives Moses very specific instructions on where the tabernacle is to be, where you put it. And if you're like me, you just skip those ten pages because it's so boring. And you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But if you get somebody who has good spatial reasoning, they explain to you that what God is doing is he is saying, you're going you're going to organize the entire nation of Israel so that the tabernacle is in the middle. I'm going to dwell in your midst. I will be in the midst of my people. That is my dream. That is what God wants. And then, as the kingdom is established, uh, David builds a temple, or wants to build a temple for him. And then uh, Solomon does build the temple, and God again comes in and indwells it. And he starts... uh, they start having all these sacrifices that, that God had ordained from Moses, but now they're all being given at the temple. And we're told that three times a year, every male amongst you must appear before me at the temple. And he got mad. You remember how mad he got when uh, Israel, when, when um, King Dan, not uh, Jeroboam, Jeroboam. When King Jeroboam said, no, you don't have to go to the temple anymore. We're going to worship at these high places. They were holy places in Israel's history, right? Bethel, where Jacob had met God and, uh, and Shiloh, I think. And they, they, they worshiped there, and God got angry with them. Why? Because he was at the temple, and he wants to see his people. 
He wants to see them over and over. He gave them commands, appear before me three times a year. What's that about? I had a uh, psychologist come in and do a talk on parenting once. And, um, <laughs> you know, the questions always come up about raising teenagers. And he had some creative things he did with his teenagers. And uh, one of them was, people kept saying, well, we want, we want our kids to know that we trust them. And he said, well, why would you trust them? Were you trustworthy when you were a teenager? Heck no. So he said, the simple rule in my house, rule that you never outgrow. If you drive home and you're sleeping in my house, my son, still to this day, has to come and kiss me goodnight. And his son thinks it's because his dad wants to smell his breath, and he kind of does. But he wants to see him. You'll know this, you parents who are so sick of your kids. When they move out, you're going to start looking for excuses Oh, no, look, he forgot his cleats. I better drive them up to him. And he doesn't play football anymore. Oh, I bet he's going to need these cleats. Why? Because you just want to see them. Why did God command every male to appear before him three times a year? He wanted to see them. Why did he get so angry when northern Israel stopped coming to the temple? He wanted to see them. Why did he get so angry when the uh, the Israelites started worshiping false gods in the temple. They were committing adultery in his bed. They were committing adultery right there where he lived. And so he left the temple. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel all talked about how he left the temple. He is gone. But he's coming back. And the Babylonians destroyed it and everybody was distraught. He said, and, and the prophet said, yeah, he left because you were committing adultery in his bedroom. But he's coming back. He's going to come back. And when the fullness of time came, he sent his son. He came back not as a, not as a spirit to fill the second temple. You can read about the second temple being built in Ezra and Nehemiah. But you'll never see a place where, the, where God fills it. He never filled it. Until Jesus walked into it, after being baptized and the Holy Spirit has fallen upon him, he walked in and he pushed the tables over. And he flipped over the tables of the money changers. And he drove everybody out. And and, and they said, why are you doing this? How gives you authority to do this? And he said, I am the temple. You see, the new tabernacle was a living tabernacle. That's who Jesus was. He was the living tabernacle. He was God come back in a way that no one expected. He is God come back. In John 1, 14, we're told, The Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. God himself lived with us. He himself was the tabernacle. He was tabernacling with us. He was living with us. And he did ministry for three years, and then he began to truly carry out the work of the temple when he was crucified, sacrificed. The sacrifices that went on in the temple every day. He was the true temple, and in his body the true sacrifice was made. 
And when he, were, when he died, we're told that the veil, the curtain in the temple that separated the holy from holies, holy of holies from the rest of uh, the sanctuary, the holiest of holies where no one could walk, where God himself dwelt, it was ripped apart. And that tearing apart does two things. One is it means we can go in. Why? Because we are perfected in Christ. He is in there. He is in there in his body. He has made us once and for all perfect, and we can go into that throne room. But it also means that God can come out, that he can fill this world by his Spirit. You see, that's, that's why it's important that this sacrifice be once and for all, that it's safe for God to dwell in us. And he makes us his tabernacles. That's what's happening in Pentecost. He is filling the room with his spirit. He is filling the disciples with his spirit. And it's a prefiguring. His, his filling the room with his spirit is a prefiguring of him filling all creation with his spirit. That's the goal. That's what we're trying to get to. For uh, Isaiah 11, the, the, <laughs> you, know, you know all the promises, right? The lion will lay down with the bear and the child will play near the cobra's hole and they'll neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain why because the earth is full of the knowledge of god the earth is filled with god the way the waters cover the sea and that's what we're moving toward and we are making it happen jesus ascends and takes his seat and he sends us the holy spirit to indwell us crazy it really is amazing the holy spirit indwells us we're filled with him what does that mean it means our our bodies wherever we go the holy spirit goes with us that's why paul says it's important he commands us go on being filled Fill yourself, fill, with your Holy, fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit. You see how, because it's everything that's special about you. You have God inside of you. I'm not saying you are God, but you have God all up in you. You're filled with Him. And He's just, every day when you wake up, He's waiting to come in. You know, um, there's two ways to, to, fill a, to fill a bag. There's two ways to fill your lungs. I learned this when I was getting singing classes and preaching classes. There's two ways to fill your lungs. You can work really hard. That's hard work, but you can do it. Or you can go. I mean, all you got to do is open your mouth and the air comes in. All you got to do is push that diaphragm out and the air comes in. All you got to do if you want to fill a bag with air is you open the bag. And it's full. The air's just waiting to come in. I don't understand the physics of that. Get one of these engineers. But I know the Holy Spirit is waiting to come in. You don't have to beg him. You don't have to go fast for two weeks. You don't have to stand on your head and pray. You don't have to get a belt and beat yourself for your sins. All you have to do is say yes. And honestly, that's more than most of us do. That's okay. We're going to start tomorrow, aren't we? filled with the Spirit. And wherever we go, the Spirit goes with us. That's what makes your ministry so powerful. You see, there's, 
ministering to people is not simply delivering to them a two, three-point sermon about how to find just salvation. It is making the whole world right. And every time you take, help any human take one step toward rightness, you're doing the work of the Holy Spirit. Every person you listen to, every person you stop to help, you are doing the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is indwelling us. He is reuniting us. The, work, the, uh, the punishment for the Tower of Babel is that God spread people across the earth and, and gave them different languages. And now at Pentecost we see Him bringing people back together from all over the earth and giving them one language. So they understand each other again. And that's how Jesus prays for us, that we would be one even as He and the Father are one. We are united by one Spirit. He dwells within us. And we take God with us and we do ministry from that, from our spirit, just getting all over people. There's just, it's fun. I have a lot of fun watching y'all do ministry. You're better at it than I am. Um, you know, I know when some of y'all invite people over to your house and I hear about it or I can watch it. Sometimes I go just to watch. I know they're going to come back holier. They don't know it. They think they're going to go watch a football game. But they're getting the Holy Spirit all over them. They're just getting the Holy Spirit all over them. And they come back feeling better and not knowing why. But I know why. Because this house is filled with Spirit. You know it whenever you see unity. You know it whenever you see a desire to serve. And so we are now dwelled with the Spirit. And as He dwells in us, and more and more of us are converted, the kingdom is coming. It's coming. The king, that, that, and that's what we're called to do. We're called to make the world right. And we're doing it. We're, we're extending God's dominion. The word kingdom is confusing. You hear it a lot. Nobody really understands what it means. It's very simple, separated into its two parts. It's the king's dominion. It is the, wherever the king reigns. The king reigns over us, so wherever we go, the king, king's dominion is there. Now, there's a lot of fear. That, that incites a lot of fear, and it should, because it's been one abused doctrine. Let's just be honest. Uh, if you know anything about the ugly side of church history, you're like, ah, let's not do that dominion theology stuff, Ricky. We don't really want to do that, you know. That's a large... <laughs> That's how the, the English justified colonizing the world, because somehow in their minds, uh, white dominion equaled king's dominion, and the kingdom of God was going with them. And God actually blessed a lot of that, despite their very selfish and greedy motives. Um, but also, you know, in, in modern day, I mean, a lot of Christian nationalism has this mentality that that what we're called to do is to, to get dominion, Christians getting dominion over the, the nation, and then through that, the world. That's the, pretty much the entire theology of the Mormons, actually, that through the, through the United States, the world will be subdued. And that's not what we're talking about, okay? And you know that's not how we're talking about because that's not what Christians do. Where in the Bible are you commanded to go find power and exercise it over each other? Nowhere. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus told us to do. What did Jesus tell us to do? He said, you know what it's like. 
You know what it's like out there among the unbelievers? They love titles. They love to remind you that they're the C-F-E-O-D, P-B-J, and all that that means. They love their titles, and they love to lord it over other people with their authority. And, and you know, out there among the, the unbelievers, they, they count how important they are by how many people are working for them, how many people are serving under them. It's not going to be that way with you. If anybody wants to be great among you, he needs to start serving. You want to be greater amongst you? Then serve more. Your greatness is going to be counted by how many people you serve. For not even the Son of Man came to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to see where the kingdom of God is spreading, you look at where the church is serving. You look at where Christians are serving. And when you begin to see the world that way, it changes your mentality a lot, right? Like there's two huge disasters going on in the world today, right? Morocco and, uh, and Libya, these, uh, the flooding and the earthquake, and it's just terrible disasters. And it's easy to only see that. But you know what's going on in both of those nations right now? Christians are all of a sudden being let in, <laughs> Under the auspices of the Salvation Army or the Red Cross or UNESCO or World Vision, Christians are coming in to serve the poor. That's what we do. And when we do that, the kingdom of God is growing. And we'll look back from heaven and see that, that God used these terrible things to extend the kingdom of God. And you see throughout the book of Acts the effects of the kingdom growing. You see healings. And you say to yourself, well, we don't see many miraculous healings today. And I say, honestly, you really, you're not so silly as to think that, are you? How many people died of smallpox this week? How many people got a fever and mysteriously passed away? How many people died of of getting a chill. And it, it, there's a reason why the churches, I mean the hospitals in this city and all over the world are named things like St. Francis and St. John and Baptist Hospital. And the reason is because wherever Christians have gone, they have studied medicine and they have wanted to make people better. That's the part of the ministry. That's the kingdom of God. Serving. Healing, washing people's feet, not seeking power. I have a mentor that I, I just love. He's, a per, he's the reason I, plant, I planted a church. He uh, was the first person to tell me that he thought I could, and his opinion outweighed my own, and so I went and planted a church. His name is Joe Novenson, and Joe, um, Joe had a real formative trip. He went to, uh, he went to India to the um, slums of Mumbai, the biggest slums in the world. And he took his son, and he, he got out of the car in this slum. It was just overwhelmed by the smell and uh, by the dead bodies, and it was just overwhelming. And um, and he, his translator led him to a place where he could preach. 
And uh, he began to preach, and when he began to preach, the, the police showed up, and they started yelling at him to stop. And uh, he asked his translator, what should I do? And, he, and his translator said, well, in, in the Indian Bible that I read, God tells you what to do when you're preaching the gospel and you're told to stop. Does it not do that in the English Bible? And he started crying because he wanted to take care of his son. He said, well, you take care of my son. And the translator said, don't worry about him. He's with Jesus. You keep preaching. And Joe said, don't say that because in America that means he's already dead. Don't tell me he's with Jesus. Um, And he kept preaching. And then they um, got back in the car and drove back to where they were staying. And Joe said, isn't there anybody trying to help the poor? trying to help these people and he said that's what we're doing right now you're part of our mission we are here to help the poor he said but anybody else and he said who else if you're hindu you don't help the poor because the poor are receiving karma receiving what they deserve from an earlier life and you don't want to interrupt karma you don't want to get her mad at you and so to to disrupt karma is to invite, you know, bad things on yourself. So you, you don't help the poor. And he goes, well, what about the Muslims? He said, the Muslims, they want us dead. They're not helping. And Joe said, you mean Christians are the only people that come to help? And he said, yes. Christians are the only one that have the doctrine of helping the poor in their system, at the very heart of what they believe. And that's how we're taking dominion. Not by ripping crowns off people's head, but by washing their feet. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we do want to open up and receive your spirit. We want to be filled by you. So that you can fill this world the way the waters cover the sea. And I pray, Father, that knowing that we're filled with your Spirit would give us confidence, would give us joy, would give us compassion, would give us hope. would bind us together with love. Father, would you fill us today? I pray in Jesus' precious name, who earned the Spirit for us. Amen.